0: This message is from Icon. From community Icon church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro Atlanta, Metro. Grace, community, community. 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 and renewal. renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We're going. Uh, we're finishing, as we get closer to the end of James, we're kind of walking through the end here. James has been talking about what it means to live out authentic faith, what it means to deal with issues at the root, what it means to not just say we believe, not just say that we're a Christian, but what does it actually mean for our faith to be demonstrated with real work? We've walked through uh, James calling out very practically calling out the ways in which our lives are not matching our profession. They're not matching what we claim to believe. That's why we've got that very famous passage, faith without works is dead. And so James has been giving us a lot of information. He's been dealing with a lot of practical issues, and he's not holding or pulling any punches. And today, he brings us into something that I think is a conversation that we really never want to have. He goes into a topic, an issue, that we often avoid. That's the issue of conflict. We normally don't like talking about conflict. We do everything in our power to avoid conflict. Because it's not just we avoid or we are reticent to engage in conflict, we also struggle because we don't really know how to resolve conflict. We don't know the reason why we fight, and so we don't know how to resolve it. And so ultimately what James is going to show us today is not just the reason why we fight, the reason why we are in conflict, the reason why we go to war, but he's also going to show what it takes to move away, to move in a different direction. He ultimately is going to show us that the 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 primary reason why we fight is interestingly because of how how hard and how vociferously we pursue our passions. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. Um, Let me ask you a question. How do you view the idea of war? Maybe more specifically, uh, will we ever see, as long as we're on the earth, will we ever see a time where we don't have war anymore? Can you even fathom? Can Can you imagine a month from now, somehow, we just have no more war can you imagine not just war can you imagine having no more conflicts will war ever end will conflicts ever end if you're like me and you're a realist you're what people would call a war pessimist you're going to say what most of us would say of course it will never end of course uh, things won't change. Of course, people will be in conflict. That's a part of our nature. That's human nature, right? It's in our genes. It's, it's an inevitability. It's a, it's a consequence of our religious, uh, ethnic, uh, economic, political differences. It, some might say, well, you know, amongst men, that'll never change because competition is just natural. It's a part of us. And whether it's, uh, maybe there's competition between genders or competition between landowners or competition between people with varying levels of prestige and power and resources and so on. Some might say as long as there are those that are haves and have-nots, there will always be conflict. And history bears this out. There There are several wars that have begun, that have been instigated by seemingly innocuous events, things that seem to be so minor, and yet war has broken out. Have you ever heard of the War of the Whiskers? It's a crazy name for a war. A lot of wars have some really silly names when you go back far enough. The War of the Whiskers uh, was a war between France and England, uh, going all the way back to the year 1152. The basic uh, story for this is uh, there was a King Louis VII who was the uh, king, it was a king in France, and he married uh, a daughter of a duke uh, in France. Her name was Eleanor. And so King Louis VII and Eleanor were married, and King Louis was known for his prodigious beard. And when he married Eleanor, he received a dowry, a gift from uh, Eleanor's father. They were two provinces, basically kind of like our version of states. So he's given this land and he marries this woman. Then he goes off to war. And when he comes back, he shaved his beard for any number of reasons, who knows? So he shaved his beard. Eleanor saw his face and said, you look ugly. You know, beard game was strong, just like it seems to be strong now. She saw him and said, listen, I like a man with hair on his face, it shapes you, whatever. Uh, I'm not liking what I'm seeing. I need you to grow it back. And he said, no, I'm not growing it back. And she divorced him. She divorced him, and she married King Henry II, who was king of England. She wanted her states back. She wanted her dowry back. And so they went to war. And actually, this war, because he refused, he didn't want to grow his beard, so she goes and marries someone else, and he is having to give land back. The demand of her dowry is on the table, and, and he refused. And so guess what? Her new husband declares war on the old husband, and that war lasted 301 years over a beard. Now, probably more than that, but that is what sparked it. Have you ever heard of the War of the Oaken Bucket? The War of the Oak Bucket really is how we would say it now. Back in 1325, it was a war that happened in Italy. You had two uh, uh, city-states, Bologna and Modena. And Bologna and Modena were neighboring uh, kind of city-states in Italy. And you had soldiers from Modena that had invaded Bologna and after they invaded Bologna, they stole a brown oak bucket. And in, in stealing the bucket, there were hundreds of citizens in Bologna uh, that, were, that were killed. They went to war, and they wanted to recover the bucket as something symbolic of their honor being restored. This war lasted 12 years. Thousands of people across both sides were killed. Medina won, kept the bucket, and the building in which it was kept... Uh, It was a 13th century building that you can see even today in Medina, a war. Now, lots of other things, right? Probably led to this, but what helps instigate or what are some of the the big pressing points here? Something really minor helps light a fire for a major war. One of the more interesting, almost comedic stories is uh, the War of Jenkins' Ear. This one is is an interesting one. This is a war between Britain in Spain, roughly around 1739 to 1748. Here's a the story. Uh, there was a captain, Robert Jenkins. He was a British merchant. He was going into the West Indies and the Caribbean, uh, right off the coast of Cuba. And there was a Spanish captain on his own vessel who wanted to search Captain Jenkins' ship. And in the middle of that search, a scuffle ensued. There was a, there was a fight, there was a struggle. And the Spanish captain cut off the ear of Captain Jenkins. Captain Jenkins eventually was released. They were free to go. He goes back to the king, and he tells the king what happened, and he shows his ear to the king, and he says, this is what happened. We must get revenge, and the king decides not to. So Britain decides not to go to war. Seven years later, people are starting to want uh, to get that land. They want the land that's in the West Indies. Spain owns it. They want it now. They're passionate about getting land. They think it should be theirs. So what do they use as a pretext? They still somehow, I don't know what they used to preserve things, but they still had Captain Jenkins' ear on file somewhere. So they pulled the ear out in the House of Commons, their kind of legislative group, and they passed the ear around and said, remember what they did to this man? Remember that they cut his ear off? And they used that as a pretext to go to war with Spain. And because they went to war with Spain, they were drawn in to yet another war that was going on between Austria and Spain. And so that war ends up lasting years and years and years. It's interesting because ultimately what we know is it doesn't take much to go to war. It doesn't take much for us to go into conflict with each other. These are wars that were fought between nations and you can read these throughout history books, but we have wars that happen just between us and it does not take much. War is far too often a fact of life. And we know it, we've seen it, we've been a part of it, we've contributed to it. Conflict is a fact of life. Despite all the treaties that are written, despite all of the uh, uh, worthy efforts and worthy endeavors, right, uh, towards world peace, all the organizations that exist, the threat of nuclear weapons, we still have war. We still have conflict. We have wars on other lands and we have wars on almost every level of life whether it's wars between companies, wars between families, wars between neighbors, and wars between Christians. We have so many, so much history about people with varying theological positions and the wars and the battles and the conflicts that will ensue. People completely break relationships because of theological differences, because there are major conflicts that we don't seem to be able to transcend. And in our text today, James discusses this very important theme of war, of conflict. He describes the different types of wars that we see in the world. He tells us how these wars can be stopped. So let's read uh, James chapter four, verses one through 12, as he really instructs us and gives us kind of the anatomy of our heart and shows us the real reason why. let me just say this, most times when you are in conflict, You may not honestly understand why, or you're not, you may not be honest with yourself as to why you really are in the conflict. You might be, do, do a great job of identifying the, the, the iceberg that's in the water, but you likely don't do a good job of identifying the glacier beneath the water's surface. And what James is doing is showing us the glacier when we only see the iceberg. James four verses one through 12. What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. Or do you think it's without reason that the scripture says, the spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensely, but he gives the greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable, and mourn, and weep. And let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Don't criticize one another, brothers and sisters. Anybody, anyone who defames or judges a fellow believer, defames and judges the law. And if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The half brother of James, of Jesus, sorry, James, the half brother of Jesus is giving us really insightful uh, look into the ways that our hearts operate, right? There, what it is that motivates us to do the things that we do. Remember James is, is writing this letter to these Christians. This is the first uh, record we have of the, uh, of the church post uh, the apostles and post Jesus, the church in Jerusalem. One of the earliest letters we have And James has already been talking through all of the conflicts and all of the issues that they've been having. And now he's drilling deep. And now he's saying, now let's talk about why these conflicts are there. We've already said why they shouldn't be there. Let's talk about why they actually exist. He opens up. He's basically saying, what's the source of these fights and these wars among you? We don't really know what all these wars were. We don't know what the battles were. We don't know. Likely there were a lot of verbal spats and, and disagreements. There could have been physical things as well. We don't really know that, but we know that they were just like us. Conflict, differences, people wanting one thing, people wanting another thing, not being able to come to an agreement. And so it, it harkens back really to the call that we see back in Psalm 133, right? Surely brethren ought to be able to live together in harmony. And yet we rarely do. Oftentimes we struggle and, we, and, and the scriptures show us in the Old Testament, Lot quarreled with Abraham. Remember his workers and Abraham's workers were fighting. Absalom created a war with his father, David. The disciples of Jesus were arguing over who would be the greatest in heaven. We are always looking for what it is that's gonna make us most enlarged at the expense of others. We're passionate about it. We even know there were disagreements amongst uh, uh, Christian leaders that we respect. Barnabas and Paul had some kind of contention, some argument over John Mark, we don't know what it was, but they, never, they were never able to resolve that. So they went their separate ways. Even churches in the New Testament, they had problems. At Corinth, you had brothers who were suing each other. At in Galatia, you had brothers and sisters who were biting and devouring one another. Even at Philippi, you had two women who were having trouble getting along with one another. We are always in an environment, in a world in which we have real conflict. It's been the case from the, from the time of recorded history. So in this letter, James, he's implying something different. He's, he's implying uh, several different kinds of potential conflicts amongst Christians. And so we're gonna see, he, he talks about, we saw it earlier in chapter two, class wars. A little bit later in chapter five, we're gonna see employment wars. Uh, in chapters one and in chapter three, we saw church fights. Uh, and here in chapter four, we're seeing actual personal wars when we, uh, where we are admonished not to speak evil of one another or to judge or to condemn uh, one another. And so we, we easily, he wants to kind of lay the claim out and show and call out, we are easily at war with one another. But why? And he begins that answer in these first three verses. What's the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you. Your passions that wage war in your heart, wage war within you. Well, the first thing we need to do in understanding this, we need to understand what does passion mean? It's an important question because it's a word that we use so regularly. It's, it's almost lost. It It has lost its meaning because, um, Uh, we oftentimes, especially as Christians, will say, well, I'm just, I'm passionate about this thing. I'm following my passion. What are we told to do when we want to seek out a profession or a vocation and figure out what we're going to do with our lives? Follow your passion is what we're told. And we preached on this before, but it's important to reiterate this again. Following your passions, according to James, could actually cause real conflict and could actually kill you see, following your passion, is, it's not enough to just go, I feel strongly about this. That's my passion. I'm going to go do that. What if you're passionate about making money? There are folks who are, you hear a lot of people who are good business folks, and they're like, listen, my biggest passion right now is just making money. My biggest passion right now is just maximizing profit. The bottom line is the main priority for me. Here's what's dangerous about that. On the one hand, you could go, well, there's nothing wrong with making money. That's true. There's nothing wrong with having money, that's true. Nothing wrong with having a lot of money, that's true. But what's dangerous when you say my passion is making money? Well, that is my overriding principle in life. If that's my, the things about which you're passionate are the things that you'll fight over. The things about which you're passionate are the things you will fight to defend and protect and to enlarge. And so if my passion is making money, then I will make money without regard to whoever is affected in the process. There are a lot of people who truly don't, their, their goal is not to make sure that people are overdosing on drugs, but their passion is making money. There are people who are not concerned about uh, having very dangerous weapons in the hands of people who should not be operating it. They don't, it's not that they're excited to see that people are shooting and killing people, their passion is money. You see, following your passion alone cannot be your guiding principle, because according to James, the reason for our battles and the reason for our conflicts is because of our passion. Now, I'm talking about passion, but I'm still not defining it. What is passion? The word for passion here in the Greek is the word hedon. The word hedon is the root word from which we get the word hedonist or hedonism. Hedon simply means pleasure. On the surface of it, it's, not, it's neither good nor bad. It's just pleasure, right? Pursuing things that bring us joy. Pursuing things that bring us pleasure. That is hedon. And a hedonist is one that says, if it feels good, do it. Pursuing your passion is simply pursuing your pleasure. If it feels good for me, if I feel like it is good for me, I will pursue it. This is where we have to be very careful, especially in our economic environment, because we're often taught self-interest is good, right? As long as everybody else is self-interested, eventually people will, if they're, if they're seeking self, eventually things will work out where everybody is seeking self and there will be a way that people can live harmoniously with everybody getting what they need or what they want. And the competition will force everybody to, to create an environment where the best products are created because of it. That's true. The best products will be created because of it. And also the mo- the deepest conflicts, the deepest break in relationships will also ensue because pursuing your passion is really pursuing yourself. Pursuing your passion here, pursuing your pleasures means pursuing things that are only important to you at the expense of others. And so here in these first three verses, James basically points out the reason why you all are fighting The reason why you have conflict is because you keep pursuing your own pleasure at the expense of your brother or sister. You keep living by this mindset of, if it feels good for me, do it. You're living by your passions. Look, our desire for things are often rooted in a desire to satisfy uh, pleasures, right? Power, possessions, and those are the things that make us fight with one another. Putting it simply, the key problem is selfishness, self-worship. It's super we'll, we'll go we'll go through this again. We've talked about it before. It's very important to delineate between subjective passions and objective passion. There's nothing wrong with passion when it is aligned with God's passion. If we're following our passions, make sure that it's rooted in God's passion. That's it. If I love, if I have a passion to make a lot of money, I hope it's rooted in a desire to be completely generous, radically generous, over the top generous. I want money because I want to be able to create these things to be able to help people and not just as a pretext, right? You know, you'll hear stories about people saying, "Uh, I I need to ask the church to help me buy uh, a boat. Why? Because I'm going to take the youth on youth trips once in a while. Okay, yeah, once every 10 years, that's great. But the real thing is you just want to, be able to go out on the water and have a boat and have somebody else pay for it. The truth of the matter is we've got to start questioning our motives and questioning the things about which we're passionate. Some people will say, well, I'm, I'm passionate about leadership. I just love leadership. That's a weird thing to be passionate about. I'm going to be honest with you. I know this is going to really step on toes. The, the question is why is it that you want to lead a thing? People who just say, I just love being a leader, are people that say, I just love being in front. I just love the attention that I get. I love the power that it affords me. I love the influence that it gives me. Those are all selfish things. And that's the reason why many times, when people are leading an organization, when things uh, start to come out and get revealed about what uh, uh, improprieties have occurred, they are running the other way and blaming and pointing fingers. Because, because they only loved leadership as long as things were good for them. They didn't love a leader. If you really love leadership, which is a weird thing, but if you are a responsible leader, you will stand there to be able to deal with the consequences too because that is for the best, the betterment of everyone else. So it's not enough to just say, I'm just passionate about money or I'm passionate about leadership or I'm passionate about anything in and of itself. You can be passionate about a thing, but it must remain right in subjection to the objective passions of God. This is where James is gonna walk us through. We're gonna keep coming back to to this because he keeps making this point. his point is that our selfish actions, our selfish desires, look at verse two. You desire and you don't have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and you wage war. What is he saying here? He's basically saying uh, your selfish motives are the reason why you get angry enough to want to go to war with someone else. You 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 want some things and you don't get them. And because you felt like you were entitled to getting them, you're gonna do what you have to do to get them now. That's why we fight. Listen, in relationships, this is the case, right? Every single conflict we have is often rooted in some sort of selfishness somewhere. Sometimes it's misunderstanding. Here's how you know, if it's a misunderstanding and that was the real problem, that once we get clarity, we should be able to resolve. If we still can't resolve even after clarity, that means there was something deeper there. There was something else I wanted that I thought I was entitled to. I didn't get it. So now I'm angry and now we're fighting. And I might say it's for another reason. The real reason is I'm selfish. That's it. I'm selfish. And so when, when, which makes sense then, because when he says, uh, you, you desire, you do not have, you murder, you covet and cannot obtain. That's a really deep thing. I think I deserve something, I don't get it. Basically what he's saying is, I will do whatever I have to do to get it. If I have to murder, I'll murder. If I, I watched uh, one person say, uh, there was a professor I had once that said, listen, we're all selfish. He's like, I wouldn't sell my kids for a billion dollars, but I might sell yours. That's just a very real statement for a lot of us. You'll see different lists. I think I gave a list maybe a year ago in a sermon where we talked about what people are willing to do for a billion dollars. There's a large number of people that says, I would kill a stranger for a billion dollars. If no one would ever know it was me, I'd do it for a billion dollars. This is the nature of our hearts when we're rooted in just following our passion. And so, the, so here's what happens. That means that even when our asking, our asking, our prayers are rooted in our selfishness. So when when people say, well, all I have to do is just ask God and just believe God for this, and then it doesn't come. The issue wasn't you didn't have enough faith to get it. The issue was your asking was rooted in selfishness. Your asking was rooted in your passions. They were not rooted in God's. Whenever we say, well, I need to ask for things according to his will, what is his will? His will is that we would do like what Jesus said, do the will of our father that sent us. So, so anything that we ask, he will give us anything we ask that is in accordance with his heart, that is in accordance with his passion. God knows what your real motivation is. He knows what my real motivation is. And so if he were to grant some of those things, it would destroy us. I heard one uh, a theologian, I read one theologian say, we should be thanking God for all the times God said no, because you don't even, un- you, you have no idea What some of the selfish motives that were at play when we asked, had we gotten those things, what would have manifested as a result? Listen, we can look at the things we did get that ended up destroying us. Think about the things you didn't get that could have destroyed you. This is what James is getting at. He's basically saying, check your motives, because almost every time you get into conflict, there's some kind of motive issue. There's a selfishness at play. You do not have because you do not ask. And then you ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures, so that you may spend it on your passions. This is what he means by we're at war within ourselves. It's like, man, I, I, there's a, I know what God says and I know what God's heart is and I know what motivation should be. But if I'm honest, my motivations are not there. And I can say that I hope you can say that there you can look at times where even there's a good thing that you want. there's a really good thing that that most people would objectively say that is good, but your motives are still are still wrong. There are countless folks even in ministry. I love being in front of people I love I have a passion to communicate. That's not alone. that's not enough to trust. There's got to be a desire to really care for people. there's got to be a desire to say I just want the will of God to go forth. And that means if it's not me, I'm okay with that because I want the will of God to go forth. So if I don't get it, that's fine. That's hard, it's hard for me. It's hard to balance because we have our own sin nature that we're battling. So many of us, all of us are at war within ourselves. It's actually harder to identify that when you're doing good things, by the way. Doing bad things, it's, it's doing things that are reprehensible, doing things that harm people. That's easier to go, okay, God's not it. God's not in this. Well, what about things that are, that are good? Are we able to identify bad motives in, in our good actions? Because that can often cause real conflict as well. So when our selfishness is at play and when our motives are wrong, we are at war. That's what James is saying. When our motives are rooted in our own passion and not in God's passion, we are at war. With whom are we at war? Well, three basic characters that, with whom we're at war. Ourselves, number one. Secondly, we're at war uh, with God. And so when he talks about this, this, uh, this selfish desires and how it affects our prayer life, well, in many ways we're at war with God because our motivation should be rooted in, in Him, but they're not. And those are the kinds of prayers that go unanswered because we're praying wrong. And it's not because we're not using the right words, We're not using the right kind of almost incantation that we think we're doing. Many times we pray because we think the purpose of our prayer is to bend God's will to ours. The purpose of prayer is not to get my will done on earth as I want it to be done in heaven. The purpose is to pray for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. So so we don't ask based on our own passions that shows that we're not only at war with ourselves, we are at war with God. And this is why people are often at war with each other as well. Again, because every war, every angry disagreement, we have this issue that's happening within ourselves. We've already decided we don't agree with what God already says, so we're at war with God. This is where he goes in verse four, you adulterous people, why does he use this word? Oftentimes, God's people have been compared to a marriage, God is the bride and we the church are the, I'm sorry, God is the groom and we the church are the bride. And so anytime our passions are out of step with God's passions, we are pursuing a different love. We're pursuing another lover, we are adulterers. This is really what what James is doing. James is doing kind of imagine pre-COVID world Somebody comes in, let's say that, uh, go back really far, pre-COVID world, go back to the New Testament church and imagine James shows up. They're, They're reading his letter, but imagine James shows up, goes into the church, walks, let's say you're there. He walks up to you and he whispers in your ear, I know. And you're like, what, you know, what do you mean you know? And he looks at you again and he says, I know, I know about it. I get a little nervous and you're like, what is he talking about? Is he talking about me? What is he? Maybe you're in denial because you're not thinking about enough all the things that maybe you have done. And then he looks at you closer and he goes, I know about your affair. I know about the conversations. I know about all the ways that that you have abandoned the one who have loved who has loved you well, all the ways you have violated their trust, all the ways that uh that, that you have uh, harmed them, and they have not harmed you. I know about it. And you're like, oh, you got the wrong one. Nope, that's just you saying stuff. You don't have any proof. I don't know how. And, he's, and And then James starts to provide all this evidence, printouts, all these different things that prove that these things have happened, all the ways that you have violated the one who has been faithful to you. And this isn't even like a situation where you're like, well, you know, some situations, very complex situations where people have been harmed and hurt and violated and then engage in other relationships. This isn't even that. This is very much, James is basically saying, that's you with God. God has been faithful to you. And here is the evidence that you have taken on another lover. You're an adulteress. You're an adulterer. Why? Why? because your passions are only yours. And you go and pursue other passions that are not in line with God. I know about it. So he makes the accusation. He then gives the evidence. And here's the evidence. You're an adulterer. He says, you adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Now, let's make sure we understand this. I think that people have mistaken this as well as meaning our job is to be in some type of a bubble and make sure that we avoid anything that looks like the world. This isn't really saying that. What this is saying is ensure that your value system and the world tells you what your passions should be. And if you take on those passions as your overriding principle, then you are more a friend with the world than you are a friend of God. Because your overriding principle, right? The thing that guides you, the thing, the thing that holds you back when you could go further should be God's passion. I, We are going to have passions that are disordered. That's a part of our nature. And so something must restrain us. What restrains us? God's passions. Loving the things that God loves. Hating the things that God hates. And that's a battle because many times we love some things that God hates and We hate some things that God loves. That's why following your passion alone, subjectively, very dangerous. And so James makes it really clear, if that is you, and he's not even saying if, he's saying that is you, you are pursuing other lovers, which is why you are not a friend of God, and which is why you remain at war within yourself and at war with other people. At the end of the day, your passions are disordered. The things that you seek after for pleasure are disorder, and you really don't want to hear it. You're too proud to believe. That's why it's dangerous to be proud, even in our passions. To take pride in the things about which we're passionate can also be very dangerous. Because if you're proud about something, you're going to fight to defend and justify it. So what it is, I take glory and pride in these things, so I'm going to justify it. And so he says, whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. If, if, you are, if you are taking on this value system and you're taking on this type of passion as authoritative, you are no longer a friend of God. You're an enemy of God. Why? Well, we're going to defend the things about which we're passionate. So if God is saying something different, I'm going to come up with any excuse I can against it. Hey, you're working so much that it's causing this kind of damage in your family. Well, I want to be able to get that extra car, so I got to do it. Now, this isn't easy. We're not saying these things are all easy, but you know your motives. Like, it's one thing to be like, I want to make sure I continue to provide. We understand. But if it's just like, there are some other things I really want and I really want to look this kind of way and I want to feel this way about myself. And so if it damages relationships, I'm still going to do it. That's not being a friend of God. Because God says to be able to do whatever it is, whatever it takes, right? What scripture says, uh, as much as it lies within you, live peaceably among you. Well, if you're doing something that's disrupting the peace for selfish reasons, God is telling you something different. You have pride in it though. So you're gonna to wanna to fight it. No, you don't understand. You don't understand why I work like this. You don't understand because you don't have the same stuff I have. You don't understand because you don't have the same kind of refined tastes that I have. You don't understand because you don't you don't know how much fun I get to have on the back end when I do this. You You don't understand. And God says, and James says, Oh, I know. I understand. You just have another lover. That's all. And that is why your your conflicts continue to happen. This is why we're at war. And so he walks through in verse verse, 5, or do you think it's without reason that the scripture says, the spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensely. God is jealous. We see that all the time. God is a jealous God. And he envies. He envies. Now, what does that actually mean? How can God be envious? Well, that word envy comes from the same word from which we get the word zeal. He basically has a zeal to see, we say this all the time, to see his image replicated in the world, which means the spirit he's given us, his spirit, he wants to see himself lived out. So anytime we pursue passions that don't reflect himself, he's angry and he's jealous because he's like, that's not why I gave you that. I didn't give you my spirit in order for you to, in many ways, uh, just take it as your own, right? I didn't give that to you to appropriate for your own purposes. I gave it to you so that you would reflect who I am. So you're taking my stuff and you're using it for reasons that I did not approve. Not only that I don't approve, but reasons that are actually against me, that are oriented against me. Yes, I'm jealous. I'm envious. I'm zealous about seeing the return on the investment that I deposited in you. Not just because God's like, I want what's mine. Also, it's like, because I know that that return is what's best for you. And it's not only best for you, but it's best for those that are around you. Because when you are doing, when you are using that gift, that spirit of God rightly, then things will go well for those in your family. You won't be in conflict. You won't won't be in uh, constant war and disputes. You will actually be in harmony and in peace. Which is why then he says next, but he gives greater grace. So what has he done? He's made the accusation, he's given the evidence, he's even given the verdict. You're guilty, you're an adulterer, spiritual adulterer. But he does not, the sentencing is different. God gives leniency, that's not even enough. God is nice and holds back, that's not even enough. God gives grace, greater grace. Therefore he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. How can we have this evidence before us, this evidence behind us and in front of us, how can all that evidence pile up against us and yet somehow we can still be innocent? How does that happen? It doesn't just happen by itself, right? God gives us not only his grace, he gives us the ability to humble ourselves Yes, if I remain proud, what does it mean to remain proud in this context? It means I'm gonna keep holding on to my passions. Why? Because my identity has been rooted in my passion. So when you call me out about something in my passion, you're indicting my character, you're indicting who I am. And so we get defensive when really we need to step back and go, well, are my passions truly in line with God? Are my passions in line with his passions? If so, then I need to repent. That's where the grace of God comes in. The grace of God does not come in in just mere forbearance here. This isn't just, yeah, you know, you got your passions all messed up, but I love you still, I'll overlook that. No, God's grace shows up by saying, I love you enough to actually rework and remake your heart so that you will actually approach this with a spirit of humility and not a spirit of pride. That's why James says, therefore submit to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners and purify your hearts. You double-minded. You realize that the root cause there of every war, internal or external is a rebellion against God. That's really what this is. This is why it's the conversation we don't normally want to have, right? Because the things that are like very apparent, those are easy to, to identify. But this inner stuff, we don't talk about this. We avoid it. Nothing is harder than really checking your own motives, evaluating why you do what you do. We can all see what you do. Evaluating why you do what you do is even harder. Submitting to God, resisting the devil, listen, We are dealing with real spiritual warfare here. There are, And here's the thing, uh, 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 there's no question that there are powers that do not want to see the image of God in the earth, the image of God redeemed in the earth. Don't want to be reminded of who God is. Don't want to be reminded of the holiness of God. Don't want to be reminded of the justice of God. Don't want to be reminded of the goodness of God. And because we are supposed to be those mirrors that reflect that, then these, these spiritual uh, uh, powers and principalities and high places that the scripture says against whom we wrestle, this, these are the ones that definitely say I everything, everything that they want to do, everything that the enemy wants to do is to find ways to make you less fruitful, find ways to make you engage in passions and pleasures that are not in line with God's. That way you look less like him. And so this is what it means to be, as he said earlier, an enemy of God. And yet God says, but I give grace, a greater grace, a grace that will transcend your sin, a grace that will go beyond what it is you absolutely deserve because of your sin. Here's what needs to happen. Submit to God, submit to God. What does it mean to submit? What does it mean to submit? How, how, because really what he's getting ready to do, what he's already starting to do here, James is giving us really four ways to remedy this problem. And the first one he gives, right? How to enjoy peace with God, right? That's what he's talking about. How do we be back in right relationship with God so that we can be in right relationship with each other so that we are not in war, at war with ourselves, each other, and God? How do we come into real peace and shalom with God? Submit. So what does submit mean? What does submit mean? This is a military term. This is a term that simply means get back in your rank. When I was in the military, there were certain customs and courtesies that we were expected to follow. If someone is an officer, I was enlisted. If an officer uh, comes by, there's a thing you're immediately supposed to do. You're supposed to come to attention and salute. If you're walking, then you still salute as they're walking by. That's how you get in rank. That's how you get in line. That's how you submit. If your commanding officer tells you to do something, unless it's illegal, you are to follow it. If you don't follow it, there are consequences. Why? Because you're supposed to get back in rank, get back in line, get into your proper rank. You realize that every time we fail or refuse to submit to God, what we're doing is we're exalting our rank above his. We're saying, I don't salute you, God, you salute me. And if I want God to salute me, you best believe I'm gonna want you to salute me, which is why we get into war, which is why we get into conflict. I don't wanna get in my proper rank. I think I deserve to be in that rank. So I will start, I will act like I am that rank and I will assume, I will uh, expect people to give me the courtesies that are commensurate with that rank. And God is saying, that's why you're fighting. You're fighting because you think you deserve something that you never deserved. You think that you are entitled to something to which you are not entitled. Get back in your rank, submit to God, submit to God. This unconditional surrender to God, this is the only way to have victory in this area of our lives. This real surrender that says, no matter how passionate I am about this thing, I might even have good reasons for this passion, but my motivations are still wrong and I need to surrender that to God. That's what it means. So when he says, resist the devil and he will flee from you, that's a part of the submitting. If I submit to God, that's how I resist. He's, when he says submit to God, he's starting to d- define how to do it. You don't get to make up the definitions. You do not get to just say, well, I made sure I repeated the right things that time, or I quoted the right scriptures during that time. No, submitting to God is what does it mean for me to resist that temptation to engage my passions, to trust my passions, and to have pride in my passions, to exalt my passions above the passions of God, above the heart of God. Resist, resist the devil and he will flee. Then he says, so the first thing is resist the devil. How do we do it? by drawing near to God and he will draw near to you. How do we draw near to God? How how do we do that? See, I think we we know that God's love is passive. His salvation of us is passive. Jesus' death and resurrection for us is passive. We had nothing to do with his resurrection. We didn't do anything to earn that resurrection. That is a passive benefit that we have that that resurrection, his blood and his resurrection has rendered us innocent before a holy God. That is a beautiful picture, but that's not it. As a result of that, that should actually bring something up in us. It should light a fire in us to want to continually submit to God and draw near to God. So, so that's something active that we should be doing. So how do we draw near to God? What does it mean to draw near to him? James gives it to us. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts. You double-minded. Y'all, this is, this is pretty simple, but it's not simple. The simple truth is that as we fall, we cleanse our hands. Remember, cleanse your hands implies that the hands got dirty. That means we're not going to be sinless. We're going to struggle with our passions. We're going to fail here. The question is not whether or not we fail or whether or not these, these passions rise up in us. The question is, how do I repent when I am made aware of them? How do I, what does it mean for me to clean my hands? It means to resist and repent of real sin, specifically on a heart level. What does it mean to repent? What does it mean to resist and move away from sins? Because that's how our sins get forgiven, through repentance through genuine repentance, not just saying I'm sorry, but taking steps to unearth some of these really disordered passions and maybe even walking away from some of those passions or finding ways to keep those passions in check. But if we are not a a people that's about repentance and about identifying the real sin in our heart, we are still enemies of God. And so how do we draw near to God? Cleanse our hands, purify our hearts. Don't be double-minded. What does he mean? Be single-minded in your devotion to God. This isn't, again, this isn't hunker down, go into your barricade, it's just you and Jesus until he comes. No, just have a heart that says, my desires to the will of my Father everywhere that I am. What it means for me to love well, what it means to care for people, what it means to advocate, what it means to use any and all uh, uh, treasures that I have, all benefits and privileges that I have. What is it? How do I use that in order to love God and love my neighbor? That's my single-minded devotion. Anything I do, anything I say, anything I have, I want to use in order to pursue endeavors that say I love God and I love his people and I love His his image bearers. That's what it is to draw near to God. To do anything else is to be double-minded. To do anything else is to be a spiritual adulterer. And then he says, be miserable and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. This is not the kind of inspiring scripture that we normally would wanna read. When you're like, I'm really down and I'm really heavy hearted and I I need some encouragement this wouldn't be the verse you go to. And yet in some ways it should be. Why does he have to say this? He's not saying that it's great to live in a a state of mind where you're always sad. He's not saying it's great to live in a state of mind where you're always crying, live in a state of mind where you're always mourning. But what he's saying is, if you have done the work that has previously been described and you have identified where you have been out of rank and you've identified where your passions are disordered, you've identified where your pride has gone before people, where your passions have gone before the very person of Jesus. When those things have occurred, your response to that should be mourning, not just acknowledgement, mourning. Whenever we sin against God and whenever we sin against each other, We should be broken over it. We should be mournful over it. That's why he says, turn your laughter into misery. Turn your laughter into crying. Turn your laughter into mourning. Why does he have to say these things? Why should your laughter turn into mourning? Well, because a lot of times when we are told about our sin, our response is often not the right one. Many times we'll try to lighten the effect of our sin by just making a joke of it. In many ways, it doesn't make sense to celebrate. And a lot of folks would do this, we do this. We will celebrate some of these disordered passions and celebrate our sin when we should be broken and mourning over it. And see when real humility happens and when we are truly pursuing God and submitting to God, we won't meet our sin with laughter. We will meet it with actual mourning. That's why in Matthew five, the Sermon on the Mount, that's why Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You might've thought, and a lot of times at funerals, people will say, well, you know, if you're mourning, Jesus promised to, co- to comfort you. That's true, but that's not the passage for that. Contextually, we know that's not what that means because the verse before it, what does it say? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Oh, wait. not just blessed are the poor that's a different kind of topic the poor in spirit what does it mean to be poor in spirit we this is the first sermon we ever did as a church what it means to be poor in spirit is what it means to be aware and to acknowledge our spiritual bankruptcy our spiritual brokenness there is a blessing in identifying where we are broken and then if once you identify, that's the intellectual ascent. Once you identify and acknowledge your own brokenness, it should move you to an emotional reaction that leads to genuine mourning. Y'all know that whenever you have a disagreement with someone or someone hurts you, when, one of the things that helps us reconcile well is when the, when the acknowledgement of what broke the relationship leads someone to being genuinely emotionally broken over it to the point where they begin to change their actions. That's how you begin to trust a person again who's hurt you. It's not enough for them to say, I know I hurt you. It's even not enough for them to say, and I feel bad about it. What happens is when they actually hunger and thirst after righteousness, which is what Jesus talks about later in that sermon, you start to see that they are actually doing, right? These volitional responses to their sin. So really, every single part of our relationship is rooted in what? Our intellectual response to our sin, our emotional response to our sin, and our volitional response to our sin. That's it. That's what it means to walk in harmony with God and with each other. So do you, let me just ask you this. When is the last time you cried? When's the last time you mourned over your sin? If you can't remember the last time you mourned over your sin, you you likely have more pride in some of your passions than you have genuine brokenness over your sin. I mean, we should be moved to a place. And I'm not, when I say, when is the last time you cried? I'm not talking because you lost a job or you lost that relationship or you lost uh, your car. When is the last time you cried over uh, genuine passions that are out of harmony with God's? where you can say my love and desire for God has just grown cold. God, I've drifted from you. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. When is the last time that morning moved you to genuine repentance to turn back to God? Some of you have said, listen, I just don't get along with people. I just don't, I seem to always get in an argument with people. I don't know what's wrong with them. It's not everybody else, it's us, it's you. If you wonder why you're in conflict with people, it's likely because your passions are out of step with God's. More often than not, that's the reason why we have our conflict. And because we are so prideful, we're not humble. We're not brought to a place of real humility. That's why he ends there in that last portion. He says, humble yourselves with the Lord, before the Lord, and he will exalt you. You know, the the crazy irony here is We pursue our passions because those passions are the things that we think will exalt us, so we move up. And God is saying the way up is down. The way up is to humble yourself and realize my knee-jerk passions could very well be out of step with God. And so let me just ease up for a minute, pump the brakes on my passion, stop and do a diagnostic test. Let me make sure that my passions are in line with God's first. And if I have conflict, let me ask myself the question, What am I passionate about in this discussion? What are the things that I'm, what pleasures am I looking for in winning this argument? Are they rooted in things that are God's pleasures or just mine? When we get to that place, that's when we move to a place of humility. That's when we move to a place of genuine peace. And then God says he will lift you up, which is why the last few verses of this part of the passage don't criticize one another, brothers and sisters, anybody who defames or judges a believer, defames and judges the law. This really is in line with the Sermon on the Mount. How in the world, if you have truly been overwhelmed by your own brokenness, your own, if you've mourned your sin well, you will never feel justified in judging and condemning, which is what that word really means, in condemning someone else. You'll never, you'll never be able to do that because you're humble you realize therefore uh, but it's only by the grace of God that I'm not there. Therefore by the grace of God go I. I I am I, it's I'm only a moment of God's grace away from having succumbed to the same thing. So so that means that when I am having to courageously tell the truth about sin to someone who might be in a really rough spot it does not come with real condemnation. It does not come with a sense of shaming you into a thing. It does not come with a sense of my nose in the air you see because that's why we fight too sometimes we fight not just because uh you're you're saying uh, somebody said something wrong to another person we oftentimes fight because somebody said something right to the other person but they did it with judge with judgment they did it with condemnation they did it with shame i'm going to guilt you into doing the right thing why because my passion is just feeling like i'm on the right side here my passion is pointing out how wrong you are that's a disordered passion That's a selfish passion. What should be motivating the person who's trying to love another person who's struggling with sin is, I have a a zeal to see you reconciled properly with God. I have a desire to see you have what is best for you, what God has as best for you. That should be the passion. That's what humility should look like so that I can't get to a place where I'm judging and I'm defaming and I'm uh, uh, demeaning and I'm condemning. Why? The very end. There's only one law, lawgiver. There's only one judge who's able to save and destroy. I can't, me trying to shame you, I can't save you. My guilting you won't save you. My shaming you won't save you. I'm in no position to judge you. I can't, that's only God's role. So the passions need to be rightly ordered. Because if I don't do that, this last question comes up. But who are you to judge your neighbor listen if we're going to get to a place where we understand why not just why we fight but how do we resolve our differences how do we get to a place where we move past just you think this i think this we're just going to be at each other and it's not enough to just go you know what i would rather not fight with that person so i'm just going to be away from them and that's it that can't be the answer either Because all that means is that the war has been, the war that's there has just been tabled for a while. All it takes is one event to happen and we're right back with the same energy, with the same fervor, with the same vitriol. So there has to be something more to actually make peace and not just keep peace and that is humility. What did James give us? The four things, the four instructions, right? We need to get to a place where we, we first say, submit to God, get back in step, get back in rank, resist the devil, identify all the ways that, that I'm being played off of my passions, all the ways that I'm being manipulated with my passions, draw near to God. What does it mean for me to draw? It says, when you resist the devil, he will flee. There's this picture of uh, uh, where Uh, When you resist the devil, you realize resist the devil doesn't even mean run from the devil, run from. You resist, he's the one that runs. In, In many ways, it's like I'm resisting with the very power of God because there's nothing that the enemy can do when the power of God is there. And so I resist the devil and then I draw near to God. He draws near to me and then I humble myself. And it's a process throughout. If we get to that place, that's when we start to have genuine harmony, not fake stuff. We genuinely are like, I love you. I care for you, you love me, you care for me. We genuinely want to make sure our passions are in line and lockstep with God's. That's what relationships should look like. That's what our marriages should look like. A husband and wife or spouses, loved ones, people who are in relationships with each other should be able to look at each other and go, I wanna make sure your passions are in line with God and I need you to make sure my passions are in line with God. Friends, I want to make sure your passions are in line with God, and I need you to make sure my passions are in line with God. I'm inviting you to speak lovingly into my life in all the areas that you see where my passions are not in line with God's. And I need you to do that because I know you want what God's best is for me. So I won't receive it as if you're just trying to judge and condemn because I know that that's not what you're doing. You're demonstrating that because you allow me to do the same for you. So our friendships should look this way. Our families should look this way. Our our, our communities should look this way. Until that's the case, we will always have war. We will always have conflict. And, And the only way that these wars cease is when this real humility happens, when these four instructions are followed. Because what's going to happen? We will no longer be at war with God. We will no longer be at war within ourselves we will no longer be at war with one another. I'll close with uh, one of the Proverbs that Solomon wrote. Solomon put it really well in Proverbs 16. It says, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. When we are so focused, not on our own passions, but God's passions, that and only that is what reconciles us to God, to ourselves, and to each other. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this corrective that James has given us in your word. I thank you that um, while this is not a conversation we often want to have, it's very uncomfortable to have to face these things to engage this. God, I thank you that you give us a greater grace that goes beyond the depths of our pride, the depths of our selfishness, the depths of our passion. God, I pray that we not be a people that are led by disordered passions. I pray that we are a people that are led by your spirit and your heart, that we would be diligent in making our lives and making our ways pleasing to you. God, I pray that you would show us all the ways that many of our conflicts are rooted in our passion. God, will you show us The areas of our passions, that need to be changed. They need to be abandoned. They need to be broken. God, will you rework those passions to be in line with you? Lord, you've told us over and over again what your greatest uh, commandment is. You tell us that we need to love you. You tell us to, to love you with our heart, soul, strength and mind, and you tell us to love our neighbor. And yet God, our passions keep us from doing that because we love ourselves more than we love you and more than we love our neighbor. So God, I pray that you would break us, that you would give us real deep conviction, that we would get to a place where we don't just acknowledge this brokenness, but that we would mourn it. God, make us a mournful people because a mournful people is a humble people. And God, you tell us that you will exalt us as we are humbled for your own glory and not for our own passion. So God, may may that be true of us. Do your work. Do the things that you set out to do. You promised that this would not return null and void. So we trust that you will complete what you started. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's receive this final blessing, this benediction from God. Yet again, think about the ways in which our Father in heaven loves us, provides us this greater grace empowers us to even deal with the sin, the sinful passions that drive us. Listen to these words. Now to him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, it is to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power, both now and forever and may all God's people say, amen. God bless you. Praise God from whom all blessings